Open your Bibles, if you would, 1 Corinthians 15. We are, of course, continuing our study of the Corinthian letters. Letters. We'll be finishing up 1 Corinthians uh, before Thanksgiving and then looking ahead to the new year, we're going to step into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is one that uh, tends to get overlooked a lot. So we're going to start in 2 Corinthians after the first of the year. Uh, but for this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. And, and, and from a personal perspective, and I guess from listening to it, it's a good bit easier than chapter 14 was. Because, you know, chapter 14, we're dealing with the gifts of the Spirit and especially speaking in tongues and people kind of amp up when you say that a little bit. And then we had that manuscript issue to deal with, uh, talking about the passage of women in ministry and women speaking in church. So that's kind of an anxious chapter, at least uh, to present, to present with integrity. Um, this is much more direct. Chapter 15 is among the most direct things Paul ever says, um, because he really only writes about one thing in the whole chapter. The whole chapter is really just about one thing, um, and it's the central issue of his ministry. It's the central issue of his life. It's the issue of the resurrection. So um, we're going to start right into the text. I'm just going to read the first eight, and we're going to look at the first few verses real closely and then kind of move through the rest a little more quickly. But Paul starts this way. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that as we look to it this morning, Father, we hear from you. That's our heart's need, Father, is to hear from you this morning. So we pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's all about the resurrection. One thing. The resurrection. Paul calls that one thing the first important, the most important thing. There's just no way as believers we can overstate the importance of the resurrection. You can't overstate it. Um, this issue is, is at the core of the gospel. It's the hope of the church. It's the hope of every believer. Without it, without our confidence in the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and ours, the resurrection, um, really everything that draws us together, everything that we focus on, everything that gives us reason to be here evaporates. It's nothing. It's reduced to a simple philosophy, and I'm not really interested in investing my life in just a philosophy. No, it's so much bigger than that. As we look to the text this morning, there's a couple of things we need to, we need to consider. Uh, first is exactly what Paul says about the resurrection as he explains it, as he explains why it's so important. And then we also want to ask, why here? Again, why does it land here? You could take um, Paul's teaching on the resurrection and put it anywhere in any one of his letters it would have the same importance. Why is it so critical that this consideration of the resurrection falls in the Corinthian letters. Uh, why is that? And I think when we look at that, we'll understand why it's so important to us, and that's what we're after. So first, let's begin looking at what Paul says about the resurrection. And again, we're going to go slowly through the first few verses and then kind of speed up and cover the rest of the chapter. But he begins, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, 
which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. These two verses are the essence of the entire chapter, the essence of what Paul preaches. He says, brethren, I'm repeating to you, I'm reminding you what I told you before. Paul is not in the least bit shy at repeating himself. Something that's important, he'll repeat. And he's not unique in that. If you're familiar with the writings of Peter, you know that Peter says twice in the same chapter, 2 Peter, what I'm doing is saying this to you by way of reminder to stir up your hearts, to bring you back to what you've learned before, right? Paul says, I'm reminding you of what I preached to you and which you also received. Note that they're receiving the message is as much a part of the gospel as Paul preaching it. And that word to receive, it's a very specific word. It's a very powerful word. It doesn't just mean to hear and nod and acquiescence. Yeah, you're right. It means to actually take it and draw it to oneself. Um, and one use of the word expresses it as being to, to take something and have such good understanding of it, if we're talking about a concept, to understand it so well that you can then turn and hand it to somebody else and explain it adequately. It means to have fully ingrained something into your being, into your understanding, right? He said, something that I preached, something you received, and in which you also stand. Powerful word. To stand upon something. Again, it means to take a position and maintain it. It's like the difference between you having a conversation with somebody and they ask you your opinion on a subject. You know, somebody asks you your opinion, you can say anything, right? You can say it with a great degree of conviction or no conviction at all. You can say, well, this is what I think or that's what I think or I, was, I held this position yesterday, but I'm modifying. I don't You can be all over the roadmap, right? But when they say, well, what's your stand on this issue? They're asking a lot more, aren't they? They're asking you to state something that you're willing to defend, something that you have thought through and are prepared to say, this is what I believe. Because I ask you, what do you think about something? And halfway through our discussion, you change your mind. That's reasonable. That just shows you're capable of thinking. But if I ask you where you stand and halfway through the discussion, you've changed your mind, what does that tell me? That your convictions are pretty shallow. Paul says, no, this is something that you stood upon, and you stood upon even under pressure. That word carries the idea of being able to withstand pressure. You know, in the Ephesian letter, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict, the armor of God, all that, he says, having done all that you might stand, regardless of what comes against us, we have this conviction that's strong enough we will maintain it even when we're challenged. Standing, yeah. And then he says, by which you are saved. And what I find so extraordinary about that is the preaching and the receiving of the gospel and the standing on the gospel which the Corinthian believers had expressed, they are all means by which that salvation progressed. See, everything else Paul says is of a more punctiliary nature. I preached it, you received it, you, took your you take your stand on it. This is a progressive thing by which you are being saved in the process. You know, we're kind of conditioned in our American thinking of, yeah, that time I got saved way back when. And ever since that time, I have been saved. No, Paul talks about it as I'm in the process of being saved, right? Now, my salvation is secure, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not worried that it's incomplete, but it is at the same moment a process by which he works out his plan in my life his word in my life. 
my expectations and hope of eternity worked out. That's progressive. And Paul said, all of these things, you're hearing me, you're receiving what I had to say, you're taking your, that's all part of that process by which you are being saved. Unless, he says, here's the qualifier, you believed in vain. Was your faith an empty shell? Now, I'll tell you right now, the, the two words that dominate this chapter, one of those words is resurrection. The other word that dominates this chapter is vain. It's repeated again and again and again. Because vanity, as Paul uses the word, and we'll talk about the definition in a little bit, vanity is the alternative to resurrection. A life lived in vain is the alternative to a life lived in the power of the resurrection. We'll talk more about that when we get into it. Paul invites the Corinthian believers, especially those who may have doubted the resurrection, as some clearly did, to recognize that the real question isn't about the resurrection, but about their faith, about, about the depth of the conviction. The only issue to be resolved is how deep is their conviction. The resurrection is a fixed matter. Rather than questioning the resurrection... They should be evaluating the depth and the strength of their own professed faith. For this is the question for Paul. Are you standing firmly on the resurrection, on the reality of the resurrection? Because there are simply no other grounds upon which we can stand. Without a hope, without a confidence of the resurrection, there's no other place for us to stand. That's why Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. This stands out. Paul has been dealing with one issue after another. We've been through the Corinthian letters. We've got a pretty good idea of the wide variety of problems they had. And yet here he says, after all that's been discussed, this is what is the most important, right? It's nothing new. He says, it's the core of what I told you from the beginning. I made it clear this was the most important thing. It's what holds everything together, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he says. He was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Wasn't plan B. There was no other plan A that, you know, Jesus might come and present himself to the Jews and they would accept it and they'd set him up as king and, it would, and then, oh, that didn't work. We go to plan. That wasn't how it worked. From the very outset, from the very outset. The plan was that he would die. You know, if you follow Jesus' trial carefully, if you follow the events of Jesus' trial in the Gospels carefully, you know that when it came to that moment of decision, they had no case against him. They had absolutely no case against him. And so in an act of desperation, in an act of prosecutorial desperation, the chief priest said, I adjure you by the Most High, are you the Son of the Blessed? Jesus didn't have to answer that question. Jewish law forbade anyone from being compelled to testify against themselves. Jesus could have remained silent, and had he remained silent, he could have walked out the door. As an act of his own will, he said, I am, which was a claim to divinity. And those two words, it's two words in English, it's two words in Greek. I don't know how many words it is in Hebrew. When he said, I am, he signed his own death warrant. He went to the cross at his own will. It was plan A from the outset, right? Paul establishes that, and then he says this, he says this, and that he appeared, and he gives us this long list of people that he appeared from, and the important thing to note is that Jesus appearing to his followers wasn't just a testimony to the gospel. It's not like you have the gospel, Jesus died, buried, resurrected, 
And now we have all these people testifying to it. No, Paul presents it in such a way that the testimony of all these people that saw him, his appearing to all these people, is part of the gospel. That's part of the gospel account. Even as our testimony is part of the gospel account. That's what makes the gospel real, is our testimony to it. Paul's affirmation of the effectiveness of the gospel was just as much a part of the gospel as is the gospel itself. Paul says this in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am that I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul's affirmation is that the effectiveness of the gospel in his own life, the fact that God had saved him, turned his life around, and made him an effective preacher of the gospel, that was part of the gospel. That's the evidence that the gospel is true and real. That's the proof. Our ability to stand up and say, this is what Christ has done for me, is part of the gospel. You know, we use the expression, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know if you ever looked at that expression in depth. It's a colorful one. The actual terminology is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And it goes back to the 14th, 15th century of England. You know, you'll often hear me say that you have to understand things in a cultural context to truly understand them. This is a phrase that illustrates that perfectly, right? Because when you or I hear the proof of the pudding is in the eating, what do we think pudding is? It's that really lovely, milky, creamy stuff, right? That's not what it was in 14th century England. Anybody know what it was? Blood sausage. Yeah, exactly. Ah. You look at that stuff and you go, oh my God, what is in that? There's no way to know. Because it's all been rendered into this kind of a semi-liquid stuff and stuffed in a sausage and then cooked and you're supposed to eat it. Like, I have no idea if this is going to kill me or not. Well, how do you find out? You eat it. And you know at the end of it, if you died, that you shouldn't have eaten it, right? If you live, well, it must have been good. Right? Like I said, it's a very colorful phrase. But what it demonstrates is this simple reality, besides the fact that you have to understand things in their contextual cultural context, is that some things can only be demonstrated by trying them. And so with the gospel. The work that Christ has done in your life and mine is part of the gospel. Because it's an affirmation of who Christ is. Actually, the psalmist already knew that. That's what the psalmist said in 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, I've heard people say, you can't taste the gospel. You just have to go in full throttle from the outset. Says who? Right? No. The psalmist just said, taste and see that he's good. Now, once you've tested it, and that's what the word means, to test by tasting. Once you've tested it and you've found that it's good, that's when you go all in. Because he says in the next line, taste and see the Lord is good. This is Psalm 34.8. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, that's not... Just checking it out. When you've taken refuge, you're all in, right? You say, the Lord is my refuge. I've gone all in, and he's proven himself faithful, right? But you get a taste first. You get to check it out. You check it out, find it works. You don't die from it. So then you eat the whole thing. You go in whole hog, and he proves himself faithful, and that is the gospel. So here's the equation. Understand the central place the resurrection holds, Christ's resurrection and ours, for without it, we have nothing else to stand on. Understanding that is to take refuge in him, make everything that we think, everything that we say, a reflection of that. That's what it is to take refuge in him. 
that everything we are, in one way or another, grows out of the reality of the resurrection. And anything that's in our lives that's outside of that, that cannot grow out of the experience, first of Christ's resurrection, and then ours, the anticipation of our resurrection in him, anything outside of that, we need to reevaluate. Does it need to be there, right? That's how it was with the Apostle Paul, which leads him to say in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's he saying? I took refuge in God. I banked all in on the power of the resurrection. Christ's resurrection as a past reality, my resurrection as a future reality. I bet everything on that. Everything in my life that didn't grow out of that, I got rid of. So you know what? If the resurrection's wrong, man, did I get a bum deal. Of all men, most to be pitied. And then he says this in verse 32. He says, you know, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Why bother if there's no resurrection, right? Everything, Paul said, is based upon the resurrection of Christ and the anticipation of mine and yours. What leads us to the question, why is Paul saying this here? Why is this so critical that the Corinthians hear this? Well, he says in verse 12, now if Christ is preached, and I realize I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I'm trying to move through it in, in, in quickly. If Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now notice what their problem was. Evidently they trusted or they accepted, they believed that Jesus had been resurrected. But it was the resurrection of themselves and others from the dead that they were struggling with. And with Paul's, Paul's point is clear. You can't have one without the other. It is completely illogical to trust in the bodily resurrection of Christ, to call that real, but then question our own. It just doesn't make sense. And if you question our own, what you've done is you've questioned his. That's Paul's point as he moves through the text. Now, verses 13 all the way down through 39, Paul lays out this very reasoned argument for the resurrection of the saints. And he bases the entire matter on the resurrection. Verse 16 is just one example. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. These two are linked, right? And I'll let, I'll let you work through those verses yourselves. Again, verses 30 through 49. The only really difficult thing in there that's not real straightforward is when he mentions the whole being baptized for the dead. That's kind of freaky. Um, that is evidently a practice that was going on in Corinth. They were evidently baptizing people that had died. We don't know any of the details, but they were baptizing people that had died. And Paul, without approving of that, is simply making the point, if you baptize dead people, but you don't believe in the resurrection, what's the point? What good is it doing them, right? So even, even those of you that do this baptizing for the dead thing, you obviously realize the resurrection is where it's at, or you wouldn't do that. Okay. So that whole passage from 13 to 49, Paul's laying out this very rational argument for the resurrection. Again, the Lord's and ours. Which is to say that whatever other issues they may have had in Corinth, this one takes precedence over all of them. That's why he saves it for the end. Right? If you've taken a class in rhetoric, you know your two strongest arguments go where? Your first one and your last one. The stuff in the middle you can play around with. But your first one and your last one, those are the strongest arguments. This is Paul's greatest concern. And the reason for that is without the resurrection, without the teaching of the resurrection, not just of Christ's resurrection in the past, but that confident expectation we have of our resurrection, 
Without that, the whole gospel loses its relevance. And again, it just becomes like a Greek philosophy, like Stoicism or something like that, which isn't worth living for. The Greeks have tried it. It didn't work, right? So you look all the way down to verse 50, and this is where Paul really starts to show the importance of our resurrection and how it speaks to us so clearly. He says, now this I say, this is verse 50, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That's the fundamental issue. This is why the resurrection is so critical to us. The question of the kingdom of God. How often do we ask ourselves the question, how do I fit into the kingdom of God? That almost sounds like so theological, like it's above my pay grade. It's not. It is the central question. Do I have a place in the kingdom of God? We tend to think of our relationship with God in terms of the forgiveness of sin and thank God for it. That's essential. Nothing moves forward without that. But we also go nowhere after that unless we consider the question, how do I fit in the kingdom of God? Because all forgiveness of sins does is wipe the slate clean so that I can even consider the question of where I fit in his kingdom. But having had my sins washed away, thanks be to God, I can now ask that question. I have to ask that question. How do I fit in the kingdom? It's a matter of the perishable versus the imperishable. The mortal versus the immoral. You see, we were never intended to be perishable. The human race was never intended to be mortal. Go back to Genesis. Follow the story carefully. It's not until chapter 6 that the idea of man dying even comes up. And then chapter 6, verse 3, he says, My spirit will not always strive with man. His years shall be 120. That's when the warranty ran out. But until then, there is no warranty. We were not intended to perish. We were not intended to be mortal, which is why the writer of Ecclesiastes said, he has set eternity in our hearts. Why is eternity in our hearts? That's what we were designed for. We were designed from the ground up for eternity. So the question, how will I spend eternity, becomes how do I fit into the kingdom of God? Because what's the alternative? I don't know about any of you, but I have been really, just really soaking up. I think it's a fairly new worship song, uh, His Mercy is More. Anybody familiar with it? It is incredible, right? Um, you may or may not know, it's actually drawn from a letter written by John Newton. Now, the writer of that modern hymn pulled a couple lines out of a letter by John Newton. And he formed, if you haven't listened to it, His Mercy is More, it's absolutely fabulous. But there's one verse in that, in that modern hymn that really gets me. It talks about our sins being cast into a sea without bottom or shore. Now, as someone who spent some time on the ocean, that's a terrifying concept. The visual, yeah, yeah, the visual of an ocean without bottom or shore is terrifying because it means this journey never ends. There is no hope of completion. There's no hope of rest. Even if I drown, there's no ending. I'm just going to keep sinking. That's a picture of vanity. See, we think vanity is nothing. No, no. Vanity is something. It is an infinite expanse occupied by nothing. 
And for a creature whose being is set on eternity in the presence of God, eternity in the presence of nothing is terrifying. On the other hand, a sea without bottom, without shore, as a place into which my sins may be deposited. That is glorious. My sins go where I don't have to. See, I'm designed for eternity, whether I spend it with God or not. I am designed for eternity, whether I spend it with God or not. One famous preacher once said, if I can get a man to think about eternity for five minutes, I won't have to preach to him. I'll just be answering his questions. Eternity without God is a terrifying thought. That's what vanity is. Like I said, there's two words in the chapter, resurrection and vanity. Vanity is emptiness. Something, someplace, yet empty. Eternity without God. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. That's the only way I spend eternity in his presence. And that's only possible through the resurrection. That's why he refers in death 50, uh, verse 54, death being swallowed up in victory. We, tend to, we hear people say that death is the natural end of life. No, it is not. Death is part of the curse. It's not what we were intended for. Death is a byproduct of the fallen state, and for that reason, it is an enemy to be defeated. Right? Death in those verses is referred to by one of those Greek words. It's about that long. Um, but you know what it comes into English as? Antagonism. Our English word antagonism is based on the word that is used to describe death. He is our opponent. He is our adversary. It is our enemy. Only overcome in the person of Christ. So why does all this matter? Is it just a matter of comfort? Are these just words we share with people who are nearing the end of the road, nearing eternity? No, 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 not at all. These words provide comfort, but they provide so much more. Look at the very last verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, now why have you been talking about the resurrection? He says it right here. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. There's that word again, in the Lord. The Apostle Paul's words about the resurrection weren't simply intended to comfort us, but to challenge us and to encourage us and to motivate us. Because let's be honest, this Christian life's not easy. It's not. Our struggle against sin, that's that word antagonist again, our struggle against sin, that's not easy. Simply getting our priorities right is a challenge. Keeping our focus on what's important, that's hard. It takes a deliberate act. And standing against the discouragement that sometimes hits us like wave after wave and we wonder how long can I keep it up, that's not easy. But a focus upon the reality of the resurrection is a powerful tool we can use. Knowing, he says, that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. It needs to be a truth that motivates and directs our actions every day. Because how I spend now determines how I spend then. Father, I thank you, Father, for, the, for your word. And I think, Lord, if, if we'd let it, if we let it, Father, if we let it work its way into our heart and our minds, our souls, Lord, it will. It'll change the way we do things, Lord. It certainly will encourage us and give us hope in difficult times, Lord. And we thank you for that. But more importantly, Father, it will change the way we do things. 
Father, help us to be the kind of people whose lives are as much a part of the gospel, whose lives are a testimony to the truthfulness and the power, Lord, found in the resurrection. Father, Father, your apostle said in another place, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection to be made like him. Even in his death, Lord. Because we know that's the path to resurrection. Help us, Father, to do that as we go through this week. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord.